my pleasure to welcome Eileen from LA. Thank you. My name is Eileen and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank Paige and Carrie. And I want to thank Melody for that really incredibly moving share. Um, you know, you hear the most incredible things in Alcoholics Anonymous and the most incredible stories of recovery. And uh, I was really, really moved by your talk. And I want to I want to welcome all the new people uh, and all the chip takers. I want to congratulate you. And um, you know, I'm so grateful uh, still uh, to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is March 3rd, 1975. I celebrated 45 years in March. I got sober uh, 18 days shy of my 24th birthday, and I'm now 69. And barreling down pretty quickly on 70. And, um, you know, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am still not only grateful to be sober, but I'm still happy about it. And, uh, you know, I never thought that it would be like that. I certainly didn't think it would be like that when I was new. Um, my background could not be any more different than Melody's, but we both ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, the thing that I love about AA is that, you know, everybody is here and AA will work for anybody who wants it. You know, young, old, gay, straight, rich, poor, every ethnicity, every religious background or none, um, you know, um, I mean, that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it really does work for everybody that wants it. And, uh, and, uh, and it certainly has worked in my life. Um, I'm a Jew from Idaho. If you know anything about Jews or Idaho, you know how weird that actually is. Uh, there were not a lot of Jews then and there are not a lot of Jews there now. And uh, we got there because my father was in the Marine Corps and uh, he was in World War II. He was a World War II vet and uh, he came back from overseas. He was, uh, he saw combat in Guadalcanal. And um, when he came back from overseas, he and my mother got married in 1944. Um, my parents' names were Harry and Harriet. They were a set and they stayed married until uh, almost 63 years until my mother died very suddenly in 2007. And um, um, my parents were actually from the Bronx in New York, which is where you're supposed to be from if you're Jewish. And uh, my father traveled across country from San Francisco when he got back from overseas. And the minute he landed in New York, they got married in July. And he got married in his wool dress Marine Corps uniform. And, uh, you know, he was grossly underweight. He had lost a lot of weight when he was overseas. And uh, my cousin just recently sent me a picture. I, I'd seen my parents' wedding picture before, but, uh, you know, I was just blown away with like how thin my father was, you know, and how drawn. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what it'll do to you. And, uh, and he'd had malaria and dengue fever. Anyway, they got married and um, he got an assignment uh, to go out west to reopen Marine Corps recruiting stations, which had been closed during the war. The war was still on and he was still in the service, but they got sent first to Portland, Oregon, and then to uh, Butte, Montana, and finally to Boise, Idaho. And 
my dad was a real baseball guy. He was a lifelong New York Yankees fan. And I'm a baseball guy because of my dad. And of course, you know, I'm dying here because it's, you know, it's the last game of the playoffs between the Dodgers and the Braves. But I made a commitment to be here. And that's all you need to know about me is that I gave up the playoffs to be here. That's what you need to know about me. But my dad was a real baseball guy. And when he got out of the service, he became a minor league baseball announcer and disc jockey in Boise. And, uh, and a man heard him on the radio and he offered him a job in public relations in Los Angeles. So we moved down here in 1955 when I was four years old. And, um, you know, um, my father had a sister living here and I think one of his brothers had already moved out here from New York. So we, we moved down here and, um, you know, I, uh, I I quickly became, you know, like the star of my grammar school. I was the star of my grammar school. I excelled at everything except for physical education and interpersonal relationships. And then I peaked at about 11 and a half and it was downhill from there. Um, I grew up during the 60s and the 60s were a particular generation. I mean, the 60s was the only generation I know of before or since that actually encouraged people to get loaded. And I loved everything about the 60s. I loved the alcohol, I loved the drugs, I loved the clothes, I loved the music, I loved the free love, which turned out to be neither free nor love. Um, you know, I love the politics. I mean, I just loved everything about the 60s, you know, because, you know, it doesn't matter that I grew up in this nice sort of stable household and everything. I felt like a freak and I'm not sure why. I have no idea why. But I found my people when I found, you know, the hippies in the 60s and all of that. And, uh, you know, I was... Um, I was, uh, you know, I started drinking when I was like 12 years old. And, um, you know, I quickly discovered that in order to get a source, the easiest way to go about that was to do what I like to call favors for older guys. And, uh, you know, when I was in my mid teens, I was sort of a heartbreakingly beautiful uh, hippie girl. I had porcelain skin, I had black hair down to my butt. I mean, I was pretty and I could I could use that to my advantage. And, um, and I did. And, uh, you know, I had no idea until after I got sober that what I was doing to myself was, in fact, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization because, you know, I'd sell myself for a bottle of wine. I mean, it didn't matter. Or as my old friend Kawanga Begay would say, you know, I would do anything for the promise of a drink, not even a drink. I mean, I would just do anything for the promise of a drink. And uh, one night I was doing a favor for a drug dealer named Gimpy. And uh, I was 17 and I had just graduated from high school and I got pregnant. And I absolutely refused to believe I was pregnant. I mean, I had only a very passing uh, relationship with uh, reality and, uh, and I was pregnant and I didn't go get around to getting a pregnancy test till I was like four and a half months pregnant. And it was 1968. And you could still do things about it. I mean, my cousin got pregnant at the same time and her parents took her to Puerto Rico. But uh, for me, it was just way too late. And um, and so I carried my child to term. Uh, I had my son in March of 1969. I never saw him. I never held him. I signed papers uh, when he was three days old and I just gave him away. I gave him away. 
And I went back, you know, like 10 days later, I was back to doing exactly what I was not only before I got pregnant, but for like the first four and a half, five months of my pregnancy. So, you know, I had no prenatal care at the beginning, you know, I was drinking and using and knowing what I know now, um, I would not have been surprised to find out that my son was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, knowing what I know now. And um, anyway, I, um, I drank and used for another six years. I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was a much more anonymous organization back in 1974. When I went to my first meeting at age 23, um, I, uh, I had never really heard of AA and central office used to do a really clever thing in the middle of the night. Um, we used to, for you younger people, we used to not have 24 hour television. There was not programming on television 24 hours a day. So in the middle of the night, TV would go blank or there would be a thing called a test pattern on the screen, but you could rent time on late night TV for like virtually no money. And central office in Los Angeles used to rent time on late night television. I checked this out later and I and they and they did this a lot where they would put up a single card in the middle of the night where an alcoholic would be like passed out on the couch and then like come to in front of the screen at like three, four o'clock in the morning. And there was a single card on the screen and it said, do you have a drinking problem? And I thought, how do they know? I mean, it was like there was a phantom living in the TV and uh, there was a telephone number to call. And for absolutely no reason that I can think of, I picked up the phone and I called the number, which was central office in Los Angeles. And we have a 24 hour central office man answered the phone and he said, Alcoholics Anonymous, may we help you? And I said, I think I drink too much. And he said, uh, would you like me to have somebody call you? And I said, okay. And he woke up this woman in the middle of the night, a total stranger. And I, I, I couldn't understand this. I mean, year, for many years after that, I was the person that they woke up in the middle of the night once I joined AA, but, but I didn't understand it at the time. And he woke up this total stranger and she called me and she said, can I help you? And I said, I think I drink too much. And she said, would you like me to take you to a meeting? And I said, oh, oh no, thank you. I said, I'll get there myself. I came to AA like this, help me stay as far away from me as possible, but please, help me. I was not a cuddly newcomer. I was not a vision for you. I mean, you know how, you know how some newcomers are really darling and everybody like races across the room to get to them. I was the newcomer that everybody raced across the room to get away from. And, um, I, uh, anyway, I went to meetings for five months. I did not get sober. Um, I wouldn't even call it slipping. I couldn't, I did not get sober. And um, I, um, uh, when the holidays rolled around 1974, 75, I thought I'm going to leave AA at least for the holidays. I, I'm not going to even try to come around because it seemed really depressing to come around AA not sober during the holidays. And I had a therapist and I'm not here to knock therapy. Therapy has been very helpful for me. Um, you know, you, it, it is really truly amazing how much help you can get uh, from sponsors and therapists if you actually don't lie to them. You know, I mean, when you actually tell the truth, you can get an extraordinary amount of help. And I, I help, and I wanna, I wanna clarify, 
that Alcoholics Anonymous is the only therapy I have ever employed for my alcoholism, but I have needed to go to therapy for other things that I just needed to work out that nobody in AA should have been expected to help me work out. And uh, anyway, but I had all these therapists when, um, before I got sober and each one was weirder than the last. And this guy was like the ultimate weird therapist. His name was Sid and he was blind and we used to smoke dope and neck during my sessions. So you know that I was getting a lot of help from Sid. And uh, he persuaded me to go to this place called the Beneville Pines up in the San Bernardino Mountains, which is a church camp, but it's not what you think. It's run by the Unitarians and they're loose. You know, they're not like your Southern Baptists. You know, the, the Unitarians are loose. And uh, so I agreed to go up there after Sid promised me that there would be alcohol up there because, you know, God knows, you know, I had to drive, of course, because he was blind. So um, we got up there and they were unloading gallon jugs of some unknown vintage out of the back of a station wagon. And that's my drug of choice, unknown vintage. I like the kind of wine that my late friend Don Norman used to describe as coming in and hovering over a grape, but never quite coming in for a landing. I'm a Red Mountain drinker. I'm a Ripple drinker. I'm a Mad Dog 2020 drinker. I'm a Thunderbird drinker. I'm a Gallo Spinata drinker. And, and, you know, this is what I like, the cheaper, the better. And, uh, and I like to combine it with medication intended for sleep. Only I don't want to sleep. You know, I have two speeds. I'm either in the corner drooling or I am operating a motor vehicle. And I am not kidding. You know, if I can get myself to the car and somehow manage to get the key in the ignition, I'm driving. And the fact that I used to drive in Laurel and Topanga Canyons and the fact that I never took anybody out is living proof that there is a God. But uh, anyway, I drove up there and Sid and I got there and there was a lot of booze and I spent the entire weekend uh, having um, a, like a sexual trio with two sex therapists from Carpinteria, California, whose names were Bert and Sally. I don't know why I remembered their names. I guess I thought I'd look them up. Uh, which I never did, um, not because I thought there was anything wrong with that, but because they were creepy, you know, and most of the people I knew before I got sober, like, you know, like Gimpy the bio dad, they were all like really creepy. And uh, anyway, um, I came back on March 3rd of 1975. I had intended to come back right after the first of the year, but it took me a couple of extra months. And March 3rd was my first day of sobriety. And I would not have given you two nickels for my chances of staying sober from that day to now. But, um, but an extraordinary thing happened to me on March 4th of 1975. I went to a meeting at the old Radford Clubhouse on Radford, uh, on Radford Street in North Hollywood, California. And I ran into a man that I had met the year before. His name was Bob Earl and Bob backed me up against the wall in that meeting. And he said to me, look, punk. He said, you have a serious problem with alcohol and drugs and you better damn well get sober or you're going to die. And then he said, and if you don't get sober, I'm going to break your jaw. Now, 
I don't know what you would have thought. I thought he cares. You know, I'd heard you cared. And, uh, you know, and the truth of the matter was he did. You know, the year before, lots of nice, well-meaning people had given me their telephone numbers. I had not called one person. You know, in those days, people like wrote their numbers on little scraps of paper and I shoved them all in my pockets. And then at the end of the night, I just empty my pockets. I wasn't going to call any of them. But the miracle of that encounter is that I actually took Bob's number and I called him. But what was even more miraculous is I called him a second time because they are not kidding when they say that defiance is the outstanding characteristic of the alcoholic, but it certainly was me. And I didn't like people telling me what to do, especially if I hadn't asked them, but he didn't care. And everybody up to and including my sponsor, Lila Ryan, not one of them has been the least bit interested in my opinion about the direction they're giving me. You know, the way this works is that AA is based on the principle of one drunk talking to another, sharing experience, strength, and hope, and that people sort of assume that if you want what they have, you might try to do what they did. I mean, there's enormous benefit, you know, to be derived by sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it is in person or on Zoom. You know, I mean, back in March when all of this COVID stuff started, I spoke in a face-to-face -face meeting on a Tuesday night, and by then we were all getting paranoid. I mean, I wouldn't shake anybody's hand. I wouldn't let anybody touch me. I was going to have nothing to do with the snacks. I mean, I just, you know, I just didn't, you know, and by Friday, some really smart computer savvy woman that I know helped me get onto Zoom so I could be in a Zoom meeting on Friday. I'd never even heard of Zoom before COVID. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't heard of Venmo. I didn't know what that was either, but I've learned, you know, I've learned. I even know how to host a meeting. I feel so accomplished, you know, anyway, you know, so there's a lot of benefit to be derived by this. And, you know, I, I know I've talked to people who go, I don't like Zoom. Well, you know, my reaction to that is too bad. This is what we have now. We have Zoom. And thank God we have Zoom. I mean, I remember during the riots in 1992, we were all locked down in Los Angeles and we didn't have any Zoom. We had nothing. You know, maybe we could talk to another alcoholic on the phone, but now we have each other in these little, you know, Hollywood Squares boxes. And to be honest with you, I love Zoom. I go to meetings in New York. I go to meetings in Ireland. I've been to Tel Aviv. I've been to Panama. I see people in the city of Los Angeles that I never see in real life. You know, I live on the west side. They live on the east side. I never get to see them. You know, I go to meetings all over the place and I get to see people that I love and I don't mind it a bit. I don't care. I mean, I do miss, I do miss human contact. I find ways to have it. I have what I call my socially distant conversation pit in my front yard. I have two Adirondack chairs with little tables next to them. They are exactly six feet apart. I've measured, you know, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought we're all going to die. So I'll buy a very fancy Nespresso espresso maker. So, you know, people come over and I make them beautiful, perfect lattes. You're all invited. If you come to Los Angeles, you can have a latte at my house, you know, I bake cookies because I'm bored. So you can also have some really good cookies. And, you know, this is how I have human contact. And you know what? I'm making the best of it. I am absolutely making the best of it. Anyway, to get back to my story. So the things that Bobby told me to do, he told me to go to seven to nine meetings a week. He told me to sit in the front row. He told me to 
uh, be, take care of my chair and my ashtray. We all smoked by the, back then. He told me to thank speakers, whether I thought they had anything to say or not. He told me to get a big book and read it and to go to a big book study. He told me to get a commitment and a meeting. And he told me that I was essentially useless, but I had a car and I could drive other people to meetings. Now, this was an idea that did not appeal to me because I claimed I didn't like other people. And the truth is I was terrified of them because I hadn't had a sober conversation with anybody really since I was a kid, since I was a kid. I mean, I drank from 12 to 24. You know, I have a granddaughter who's 14 and she's like my mini me. I mean, she has my personality. She has, you know, she has my shtick and I believe she also has my disease. You know, and uh, and, you know, I'm not surprised by it because I was a 12 year old alcoholic and I look at her and I just think I get it. I get it. And I don't know what I can do about it, but, uh, you know, that's how it goes anyway. Um, so I got involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, and when I was new, um, you know, I had a lousy attitude. I mean, when I got to AA. I weighed about 2.30. I was wearing a 5.99 granny dress from Zodi's. I had a bad haircut that I believe I had performed on myself. I had very spotty hygiene and I had a really bad attitude. And honestly, I think that's the best way to come to Alcoholics Anonymous because, you know, there's nowhere else to go. And I had nothing to do. I had no job. Um, I had, you know, I had gone to college. I'd gotten into college by one one hundredth of a percentage point, you know, based on my SAT score. But, uh, you know, when I went to college, I majored in getting loaded, rioting and hanging out. And in 1972, I got thrown out of college. And in 1975, I got sober. And, uh, you know, I had all kinds of jobs. I had all kinds of jobs. I would just do whatever kind of job that I could get. And, uh, when I was 10 years sober, I got a job doing the kind of work now. Um, I had made a 12-step call at a hospital on somebody who was famous, and I didn't do it because she was famous. I did it because every other week, my friend Marie would call me, would call me to come to the hospital and pick up some girl who was ready to go out to a meeting from her 30-day program. And one week, it was this celebrity. And she asked me to be her sponsor, and then three months later, she asked me to go to work for her. And I told her to get another sponsor and I went to work for her for a couple of years. And then she started, I believe, started using again and came up with some story to get rid of me. And uh, and I went to work for somebody else. And I've just passed 33 years at this job. And I'm going to retire at the next end of next year after having worked at this job for 34 years. And, uh, you know, I have the kind of job that's perfect for somebody like me because the entire job is about being of service. That's what it's about. That's what I've learned how to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, uh, my life has been filled with everything, you know, because, you know, we, we, get, we get, you know, another chance at life here, but, you know, the catch is we get another chance at life. And sometimes life is not easy. I mean, Melody talked about losing her brother. I mean, that's such a painful thing. I have lost both of my parents in sobriety, uh, my mother, uh, died very suddenly in 2007. She was fine one day and dead the next. And, uh, you know, my father, who is the prince of men, who was the prince of men, was 86 years old and the most heartbreaking, broken person I've ever seen in my life. And he had never lived alone. He had gone from his family to the Marine Corps to marriage with my mother at age 23. And uh, anyway, we didn't know what to do. So I moved in with him for a couple of months. And then I started staying with him every other night so that he would have something to look forward to all the time. 
because I could not bear the thought of my father eating a solitary breakfast every day. And uh, when he was still able, we had, you know, once we got over the initial shock and, and uh, you know, we were able to then, you know, go out and have like a really nice life together, my father and me. And, uh, you know, I gave up a lot to do that, you know, but I don't regret one iota, you know, and, uh, you know, what I learned during that time is that, you know, everything that we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous, at least for selfish, self-centered alcoholics like me, is what I like to call the inconvenient thing. Because for me, you know, some days putting on pants and leaving the house is the inconvenient thing, which is why I love the first three months of being locked down because I rarely did put on pants and leave the house, you know, but, uh, but I was still, you know, I was in the meetings and I was active and I was doing whatever it was I could do and what little bit of work I could do while we were all, you know, more or less, you know, on lockdown. But, uh, you know, I learned how to do it with my dad. And for the first few years, it was terrific. You know, he was still in pretty good shape. And, you know, my brother and sister-in-law and I took him, you know, to Poland to find the town that his family came from. And we went to New York and we went up to the Northwest to visit family. And we went to ball games and we went to the symphony, you know, towards the end, my father's hearing was really bad, but one of the few things he could hear was classical music. And I would take him to our beautiful Disney hall back when we used to go to our beautiful Disney hall. And, uh, and he would sit there with a look of rapture on his face. And, uh, you know, uh, when four years before he died, he moved into a senior place and I still saw him three or four times a week because I felt like I owed that to him. And every week I would look at my calendar and I would think, when am I gonna go to my meetings? When am I gonna be with dad? You know, what am I gonna do? And that's what I did. You know, I used to speak all over the country. I gave it all up. I didn't wanna leave him alone on the weekends. And uh, my primary focus of service had to be to my father. And it says somewhere in our literature that our, our 12 step work is an avocation and must come after our job and our family. And I was still sponsoring and being sponsored, but everything had been pared down in order to, you know, be there for my dad. And his last year was really rough. And at the beginning of 2018, I looked at my dad and I thought, he's not gonna make it through this year. And two and a half months into it, he got a massive cerebral hemorrhage and he died the following afternoon. And I was with him when he took his last breath. And it was a privilege to take care of my father. I, I loved him so much. You know, I miss his gentlemanly company to this day. I was so lucky. I was just so lucky to have him. He was almost 97 years old when he died. And, uh, and he lived 11 years after my mother died, partially, I think, because I kept him going, you know, and, um, um, you know, and you learn how to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. You learn how to be of service. You need to, you learn how to go over and above. You know, I never thought that I would be capable of some of the things that I'm able to do, you know, that I want to render prodigies of service. I remember, you know, in the 12 and 12, where I read that there were some people for whatever reason would not have a family life and those people would be able to render prodigies of service. And I thought, oh, F this, you know, and I, I never got married and I never had any other kids. And then on July 4th of 1996, I got a phone call that changed my life. It was, I was looking forward to a four day weekend and I got this telephone call and it was a searcher from Seattle, Washington. And she said, is your name Eileen Waterstone? And I said, yes. And she said, does the date March 28th, 1969 mean anything to you? And of course, you know, it was him. And um, she said, can I give him your phone number? And I said, no, I said, give me his, call him back 
Tell him I'll call him when I've had a chance to collect a few things like my stomach off the floor, you know, because I honestly never thought he would look for me. I had heard that boys were far less likely to search than girls. But I found out in our first conversation that he was told to look for me because he had been in a rehab two years earlier. Now, granted, considering the details of his conception with Gimpy, the drug dealer, I was not shocked that he had been in a rehab. And, uh, and they told him in the rehab that he'd probably never be able to stay sober if he didn't solve the mystery of his adoption. And anyway, he tells me this in our first conversation without knowing a thing about me. So, and I could tell by the tone of the conversation that he was not currently rehabbing, if you know what I mean. And so I thought, oh, what the hell? So I thought, I said, hey, I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what an amazing coincidence. I said, I have 21 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I could hear him like, oh, shit, oh, God, she knows, you know. And uh, anyway, I went and picked him up three days later. And except for the fact that he's six foot three, half Mexican and a guy, we look exactly alike. But more importantly, he was living a mile and a half away from me 27 years later. But wait, it gets better. When he was 16, he was friends with the actress Christina Applegate, and they were both friends with a girl named Mariah O'Brien, who was the daughter of, the, of a girl I sponsored. So 11 years before I ever met my son, he was spending a lot of time in the home of one of my sponsees, but nobody knew he was my son. But wait, it gets better. In Los Angeles, there is a notorious strip bar called Jumbo's Clown Room. And I used to drive by Jumbo's on my way to meetings in Hollywood and think, why didn't I drink there? What a great name. I didn't know it was a strip bar. And the bar is owned by the family of a man that my niece was married to at the time. So my son was working for my niece's mother-in-law, but nobody knew he was my son. I mean, it's just crazy. Anyway, my son has had a long and spotty history in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been around for 26 years. He had a um, 10 year period after we met where he went in and out all the time. And the last two years were absolutely horrendous to the point where I couldn't talk to him at all. And then he met a guy like I met Bob and that guy changed his life and he listened to him and he started following direction and he got sober. And then somewhere around, I think year eight, he started to slack off and he stopped going to meetings and lo and behold, he got loaded. And then he went to rehab and then he went in and out a bunch. And right now, as I sit here, he has about five months of sobriety and he is in sober living and in intensive outpatient treatment, which I am paying for because he came to me two months ago and begged me to put him in sober living. He was living with a woman for years. She was enabling him. She was sober, hadn't been to a meeting in years. She moved both of my grandkids in. My son has two kids from two different women before sobriety. And I have an 18-year-old grandson, a 14-year-old granddaughter, and she moved them all in to have an Insta family. And you know, and she took care of all of them and it all fell apart in February or March. In April, my son ended up in the hospital. It turns out he had COVID in February. He ended up in the hospital with pneumonia with blood clots in his lungs, but nobody knew about the COVID back in February. So right now he's in rehab and I'm giving him six months. I told him I'm giving him six months after my father died, I inherited some money. And I said to him, honey, I'm using part of your inheritance in the hopes that you live long enough to inherit it after I die. 
And I said, and I told him, I said, there are two things you cannot do. You cannot get loaded and you cannot leave. If you get loaded, it's over. If you leave, it's over. I'm not paying for you to go back in and I'm not paying for you to go someplace else. So you might as well pay attention. And one of the things that I find so beautiful is that one of those women that I used to pick up from that hospital program where I met my first boss, a woman named Betsy, is now the clinical director of the place where my son is. So we've kind of come full circle. I took her to, to her first meeting out of the hospital and she helped get my son into this place where he is now, where he seems to be doing well. So, you know, I, uh, I, I figure where there's breath, there's hope. I mean, I never, I never give up hope. Um, you know, I never give up on people. You know, I never give anybody, you know, I never give anybody a hard time when they come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I believe that, you know, that sometimes we drink because we're alcoholic. I know that, you know, I know that not everybody makes it the first time, you know, and uh, when I see somebody come back to Alcoholics Anonymous, I welcome them. I welcome them. And I tell them that we're, I'm glad that you're here. I mean, it's like if somebody has cancer and they have a relapse and they go back to the hospital. I mean, hopefully the hospital staff doesn't yell at them and say, how could you screw up like that, you know? Um, but you have to do the work. I mean, if I'm going to help you, you have to do the work. Um, you know, I don't waste my time with people who won't go to meetings and won't help others and won't read the book and won't work the steps. I just don't waste my time. But I welcome everybody back. And, uh, you know, I've had a wonderful life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said to somebody recently, if I never get to go to another, get a, go on another trip, if I never get to see another Broadway show, if I never get to go to another concert or have some fabulous meal out, you know, I've had way more than my share. You know, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to Africa. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Israel. I've been all over Europe. I've been to Bali. Um, you know, I've been all over the Caribbean, Canada, all over this country. I mean, I've gone so many places. I've done so many things. I've had so many fabulous experiences. Pretty much every country that I've ever gone to outside the United States, I've found some way to at least find one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to go to. Sometimes they're in a different language. Sometimes they have the steps and traditions banners and they're in different languages, but you know what they are. You know what they are. And I've had this full life. And I've had hard times too. I've had eight orthopedic surgeries since 1992. I've had both my hips and both my knees replaced. I've had long recuperations. They've told me, they've taught me a lot about patients. They've taught me a lot about, you know, just, you know, I mean, I am uniquely positioned. I've been home a lot, you know, recuperating from surgery. So I have no problem like being at home for long periods of time. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, with each passing surgery, I mean, the first one, I didn't want any help. The last one, anything anybody wanted to do for me, I just said yes. You know, and so I learned some valuable lessons with these surgeries, you know, and uh, and some of the recuperations have been brutal. And one of them in particular happened in January of 2007, where I had this horrible foot surgery. I had to my, have my foot uh, reconstructed and I recuperated at my parents for the first six weeks. My mother was still alive. And then five months later, she died so suddenly. And about two years later, I looked down at my foot, which is rather deformed, but the surgery did what it was supposed to do. And I just thanked my foot for giving me those six weeks with my mother that I never would have had at age 55 if it hadn't been for that surgery. So I bless my foot. 
And then I got a tattoo as sort of a memorial to my mother on top of my foot, which hurt almost as much as the surgery. I would not recommend that, you know, and I have a lot of tattoos, but the one on top of the foot was a nightmare. But when I look down on that, I think about my mother and I think about her with love. And I think about how this opportunity was presented to me. You know, my, my version of a higher power is, uh, you know, mostly seen in retrospect. I mean, I believe that there's a power in the universe. I don't believe in a big man in the sky, but I believe that there's a lot of power and energy in the universe. And that every time that I have needed a, a change in my life, that, that power has moved a person or a situation into my life that acts as a catalyst to move me to wherever it is that I'm supposed to go next. And because of that, I no longer try to judge the situations that I'm in the middle of as being good or bad or positive or negative or black or white. I mean, 2020 has been really, really difficult for so many people. I know that a lot of people are suffering. I do not have my head in the sand. I am very well aware of what's going on. I got sober to live in reality. I never wanted to have anything to do with reality, but I live in reality now. But I am practicing what I like to call radical gratitude because I have so much gratitude for what you know I have in my life. And at every opportunity that I can because of my good fortune, I try to pay it forward to people who, who need help. Whether it be monetary, whether it be food, whether it be something, I try and pay it forward. You know, because I have been very, uh, I have been very blessed with a lot of good fortune. And so I am trying to practice radical gratitude in the middle of, you know, a very, very difficult time. It's a very difficult time for people. And when, you know, when the mayor of my city told seniors to stay home and stay in place, I did it. You know, because when I was new, the words that I thought were dirty were not swear words. Everybody who knows me knows I love to swear. You know, I like to swear. I like, it's like putting like spices on your conversation. The words that I thought were dirty were things like job, responsibility, commitment, cooperation. How about that word? Cooperation. I am a cooperative person. I do not leave my house without a face mask. I just don't, because I believe the science. That's just me. I don't leave my house without a face mask and I do everything that I can to try and avoid catching the virus or giving the virus to anybody else, you know? Because it's real and it isn't going away anytime too soon. And this is how we're living now. So I live within the confines of that, just like I live within the confines of my primary purpose, which is that I can go anywhere and I can do anything as long as I remember my primary purpose, which is to stay sober and carry the message. And I hope that I've done that tonight. I know that I've stayed sober. I hope that I've carried the message. I really wanna thank you for letting me share.